Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to Episode 40 of Discovering the Old Testament. Today, we will take a look at one of the more unusual books of Hebrew Scripture, the Book of Ecclesiastes. This is rightfully known as the most skeptical book in the Bible. The theme is the value of wisdom, which comprises an entire genre of literature in both ancient Hebrew literature and the rest of the ancient Near East. I like to call wisdom literature ancient Near Eastern success or self-help literature, for its purpose is to address the question of a good life. What is it, and how do you lead it? The book of Proverbs is the, well, proverbial example of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Wisdom literature tends to be quite secular. It's less concerned with ritual, purity, and other more overtly religious issues. You won't see much about salvation or the national history of Israel. Wisdom literature takes a very questioning attitude about the problems of life in general. Why is there suffering, inequality, death? And why do the wicked prosper? There is great interest in the universal human experience and human condition that affects all humans, not just the chosen people. It also surges with joy in the contemplation of creation and God as the Creator. So what is wisdom? When the Book of Kings describes Solomon's wisdom, it speaks of him writing thousands of proverbs. It also describes someone who knows of trees and plants, animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, something of a biologist. In addition, he wrote over a thousand songs. We tend to draw a distinction between knowledge and wisdom, where wisdom is the ability to interpret a large body of experience or knowledge, but is not the knowledge itself. The biblical view seems to include both. Both Proverbs and Psalms speak of God creating the world with wisdom, by which we might say that he laid down the rules by which the world works. So, when we talk about Solomon writing Proverbs, it's not that he wrote them so much as he discovered them, that he could discern the patterns by which the world worked. There is a strong sense in Proverbs that wisdom constitutes a set of rules by which the world works, follow these rules, and things will work out. You'll enjoy good relationships, or at least avoid bad ones, you will prosper, your acne will go away, whatever. But proverbial wisdom tends to be very self-assured, there is an implicit ideology that there are the righteous and the wicked, and proverb after proverb talks about the two groups without mentioning those in between, which is pretty much everybody. With that in mind, Ecclesiastes, or Koheleth as it's known in Hebrew, is not your average bit of wisdom literature. This is not your usual collection of Polonian platitudes of neither a borrower nor a lender be kind of stuff. The preacher, as the author of Ecclesiastes is generally known, takes a very hard look at the whole question of wisdom and finds much that is wanting. My favorite summary of Ecclesiastes is that of biblical scholar James Kugel, 
who called it, quote, a lover's quarrel with orthodox wisdom. The author wishes things were indeed the way traditional sages claimed. He is truly a student of and a lover of ancient proverbs and their ideology, but somehow, he says, reality rarely seems to match wisdom's claims. Close quote. It is, frankly, something of a miracle that this book made it into the canon, arguing as it does that it is quite impossible to understand or know the ways of God or how things actually work in the world. The fact that it ends with a statement, quote, The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of everyone. Uh, well, that probably allowed it to stay in our Bibles. Ironically, this epilogue was almost certainly added by a later hand who wished to soften the sharp edges of the book. It also helped that the book was attributed to Solomon, even though there is not even any actual reference to Solomon, directly or indirectly, after chapter 2. This book is a late composition, almost certainly post-exile. It appears to engage some of the Greek philosophy, or at least the questions that preoccupied Greek philosophical thinking in the time following the death of Alexander the Great. Rather systematically, Ecclesiastes goes through the process of examining different paths to fulfillment and meaning, pleasure, great projects, amassing wealth. Koheleth does find some pleasure, but nothing of lasting value. The text can appear maddeningly obtuse. It seems that the book, on the surface, is just a pile of contradictory statements, but that's part of the point. Ecclesiastes is not going to be satisfied with pat answers. Here are the issues and the ambiguities. The reader must engage in a dialogue with the author as part of sorting them out. One of the more radical assertions is that following the rules will not necessarily lead to success. He argues that one's fate in life is not tied so much to what one does. Chapter 9, verse 11. And again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to the skillful, but time and chance happen to them all. It is, to be sure, a book filled with paradox, especially in the context of the rest of the Old Testament. This is not because the author is being wishy-washy. It is a very honest appraisal and acknowledgment of what serves in one circumstance is not going to work in another. To everything there is a season. At the end of the day, he contends, whatever we achieve will not go with us. You can't take it with you. Even those things that your successors carry on will eventually come to naught. Death conquers all. No matter how hard he labors, or how craftily he plans, despite all his work and toil, life will not compensate him accordingly. Indeed, he goes so far as to say that humans are little better than animals when it comes to their ultimate fate. Again, chapter 9. For the fate of humans and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and humans have no advantage over the animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all turn to dust again. 
Who knows whether the human spirit goes upwards and the spirit of the animal goes downwards to the earth? All that being said, Koheleth does have some positive things to say about life. On the whole, he feels that in spite of the uncertainty, there is good to be found. Chapter 5, verse 18. This is what I have seen to be good. It is fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of the life God gives us, for this is our lot. Likewise, all to whom God gives wealth and possessions, and whom he enables to enjoy them, and to accept their lot, and find enjoyment in their toil, this is the gift of God. But where Hocheleth really shines is its implied response to the Greek philosophers who demand logical consistency as the test of truth. Koheleth insists on recognizing the irrational content of life, not shoving it aside in favor of some theoretical coherence. Incidentally, Ecclesiastes makes a passing nod to God, but the name of God, Yahweh, appears nowhere in the text, and it further does not support the idea of a God who acts or intervenes in history. In fact, we get a strong sense that the usual rules of living must be subordinated to our circumstances. This is the overall gist of chapter 3, perhaps the most famous and the most beautiful passages in Ecclesiastes. Certainly it is one of the most memorable. To everything there is a season. There are times and seasons for things. Someone seems to be in control of what happens in the world, because it all seems to happen when it's supposed to, even the things like killing and hating that are normally proscribed. One could read this as a rebuke against trying to live one's life according to a set rule or set of rules. Things happen when they happen. The best we can do is try to go with the flow. One thing that wants some discussion is a word that shows up a lot in Ecclesiastes, and that word is vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, is how the book opens. Unfortunately, the English word vanity doesn't really capture the essence of the original Hebrew. In fact, it's best to ignore the usual translations of that and other key words or phrases. The Hebrew hebel has been variously translated as vanity, or meaningless, or empty, or even as smoke, which frankly is closer to the mark than the others. The word means vapor, as it's used in Proverbs, or breath in Job, Isaiah, or Psalms. By using a word with smoky, vaporous, airy connotations, the preacher asserts that life is brief and beyond our control. The world goes on unchanged in spite of all our frantic activities because things slip through our fingers when we try to grasp them, and through our minds when we try to understand them, because nothing lasts, yet everything stays the same, because it ends in death, 
and we have no control over our future. Likewise, the phrase striving after wind is better translated as shepherding wind. The image does not express vain pursuit, but the effort to control or corral an elusive world. After Solomon has constructed his pleasure garden in chapter 2, he realizes that however solid his works appear, they are as evanescent as wind. Man cannot shepherd the wind, but Yahweh, who rides on the wings of the wind, as it's described in Psalms, is the one shepherd of the windy world. How we went from vapor to vanity is largely due to Jerome's translation into Latin, the Vulgate, which translated Hebel with uh, vanitas, which means unsubstantial or illusory, quality, uh, emptiness, falsity, untruthfulness. Contrary to what you might expect from typical success literature, Koheleth takes a fairly harsh view of the usual things we associate with success. The speaker claims that the practice of hoarding riches is intrinsically harmful, a source of anxiety, and brings no satisfaction. That said, he doesn't say anything about dispensing said wealth among the poor. On the contrary, one is apparently supposed to enjoy whatever one has, rich or poor. The ability to do so is a gift from God. This gift of enjoyment is not an automatic thing. It is possible for a man to have all kinds of riches and the honor that goes with it, and yet not only does God not allow him to enjoy it, it gets consumed by someone else. The implication is that the rich person would die first and someone would acquire what he could not take with him, but it also leaves open the possibility that we are talking about theft or plunder, which is just as easy a way to lose one's wealth and, worse, see it in the hands of someone who did little or nothing to gain it. I'm reminded of a famous Yiddish curse, may you make so much money that your widow's second husband will never have to work. Pursuit of riches are also to satisfy, but only the mouth obtains satisfaction. The soul goes wanting. In fact, the more the riches, the greater the vanity. This deficiency is so great, the preacher contends, that it is better never to have been born alive and known anything than to experience such disappointment and heartbreak as an unsatisfied soul. To enjoy what you see is better than a constantly shifting desire, always looking for what is good. Humans don't even know what they want out of life, often as not. The only answer to the vanity of life is God. All else is ephemeral. But as the book proceeds, the pessimism of the preacher begins to fade. He concludes that even if wisdom is hard to find and not always compliant with the real world, it is still far better to be wise than to be a fool who takes no notice of the world and how it works. Such a person is basically doomed to live a life of frustration and missed opportunity and enjoyment. For the one who seeks to live according to wisdom, there is still sweetness of light and life under the sun, meaning in our temporary lives. It is good to enjoy life, even if, as Shakespeare put it, golden lads and lasses must, like chimney sweeps, turn to dust. There is, as I mentioned, an epilogue to Ecclesiastes, let us hear the end of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of mankind. 
This is generally agreed to be the reason why it skated by in getting into the canon. The interpretation of this text has swung between the literal and the allegorical. Rabbinical debate about the canonical status of Ecclesiastes indicates that there were early literal interpretations of Ecclesiastes. However, by the 4th century AD, allegorical thinking and reading of Ecclesiastes was dominant among Jews and Christians, with eating and drinking being taken as referring to the Torah or the Eucharist, and the vanity element as a warning against excessive attachment to this world, as opposed to eternal life. An allegorical reading of Ecclesiastes remained the dominant mode until the Reformation. It took the revival of literal interpretation by the Reformers to open up, for example, the possibility that eating and drinking refers to legitimate enjoyment of the God-given creation. Whether interpreted allegorically or literally, prior to the rise of modern criticism virtually across the board, Ecclesiastes was read as scripture with that epilogue taken as the key which unlocks the book. One of the great ironies is that to truly embrace the religious and spiritual quest means immersing oneself in ambiguities. The great affair is not to explain them away, but to understand how they fit into the order of things. As we saw when we looked at the book of Job, in spite of the assertions of the Deuteronomic school, the chronicler, prophetic tradition, and even more secular wisdom literature, there is ambiguity and dissonance in the world. That the gatekeepers of the Old Testament canon acknowledge this by allowing books like Koheleth into the canon constitutes, in my opinion, one of the finest moments in the Judeo-Christian scriptural tradition. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.